from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kuom, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict instructions not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Rich, for reading that so beautifully. Um, good morning, everyone. I would like to invite you all this morning to really be in your body and to experience this story with your senses. This is a very body-focused passage, and Jesus, who's God in a body, walked and moved and spoke with actual people. Jairus throws himself at Jesus' feet. The woman reaches out to touch Jesus' cloak and immediately in her body feels the disease leave. And Jesus feels in his body power go out from him. 
And when he raises the girl, he takes her by the hand and literally lifts her up out of death. In our Western post-enlightenment culture, we have such a separation and dualism of the mind and the body. But I think that this would be really foreign to the writers of this passage. Our bodies are created good, and they tell us things about what we need. They tell us when we're hungry, when we need some rest, when we're really angry and we need to process something that's going on with us. Moving through emotions helps us grow. And God can use all of these things to work together for our collective good. So I invite you to do a little exercise with me. Take a deep breath. Take a moment to really feel what's holding you up right now, maybe your couch or the ground. And notice what happens in your body when I say the following words. Healed. Daughter. Crowd. Privilege. Just believe. Thank you. Take a moment to note those feelings and bring them along with us as we journey through this scripture together. Now, this is an amazing story, and there's so much here that we could dive into, but I'm just going to talk about one important aspect. And first, a little note about where we are. Um, This story in Mark takes up a large amount of narrative space, but Mark is the shortest gospel. This story is also in Matthew and Luke. And the amount of space given to scripture reveals to us what the authors want us to pay attention to. This story deserves so much attention that it's told three different times. And you might think, of course it's in three gospels. Somewhat, Jesus raises someone from the dead for the first time. But each account includes both the healing of the bleeding woman and this interesting sequence of events where Jairus first approaches Jesus, then the bleeding woman receives healing by touching Jesus, and Jesus interrupts what he's doing and makes space for the no longer bleeding woman. In each account, Jairus must wait. And Jairus must wait for a social outcast. This outcast experienced a great deal of pain in her body. Verse 26 says, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Mark uses the word suffering several times, but this was more than just physical pain. The bleeding she experienced was likely due to a menstrual disorder, which meant that because of the purity codes in Leviticus, she was ceremonially unclean. Ancient ancient civilizations had purity codes because before modern medicine, they had to get a way to prevent people from getting sick. I think our purity codes in 2020 are wearing masks and using hand sanitizer all the time. But because she was ceremonially unclean, she couldn't even touch another person without making them also unclean. 
Yes, she would have had pain in her body, but she also would have had shame in her body. She was a social outcast and a religious outcast. She couldn't participate in normal religious rituals. And she spent all her money on doctors trying to get well. Nothing worked. This was financial, social, emotional, spiritual, physical suffering. She tried everything. Nothing worked. Yet she still has great faith. So much faith that she sneaks up on Jesus and she reaches out. I wonder what Jesus' cloak would have felt like. The account in Matthew gives us uh, a clue about this. He uses the word fringe, which likely refers to the tassels worn by Jewish people called a tzitzit. Numbers 15, 38, and 39 tells us about these. It says, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so you remember all the commands of the Lord. So she touches the tassels with blue cords, no doubt remembering the commands of the Lord, and immediately the pain leaves her body. Now, like I mentioned, if she touched someone else, they would have been made unclean as well. And this is where the story is flipped on its head, because when the woman touches Jesus, she does not transmit her uncleanliness to him. He transfers to her healing. The old ways are being reversed and opened to healing. Now, all of this happens when Jesus and the crowd around him are already on their way to see Jairus' daughter. Jesus stops everyone. He turns around and asks a really weird question. He said, who touched my clothes? Now, the disciples also thought this was a weird question, but this was a way for Jesus to make space for her. He shifts the public attention off of himself. He was kind of like a celebrity, and he instead gives her a platform. This was an invitation for her to speak. In verse 33 says, Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. After 12 years of being cast out, this woman gets to tell her whole truth to Jesus and to the crowd. However long it took, she was able to finish. We don't know how long, but we do know that it was at least some length of time because while she was speaking, a little girl goes from sick to dead. Theologian and social um, psychologist Dr. Christina Cleveland says, Jesus isn't tone policing here. Jesus listens to her and responds so tenderly, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He does not blame her for her shame. What was going on in Jesus' body at this moment? Some other scriptures give us a clue. Um, when he heals people, the text often uses the word compassion. 
So, for example, Matthew 14, 14 says, He went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The word for compassion here is also used to describe the father and the prodigal son when he sees his son a long way off, and it's also used when Jesus sees the hungry people and feeds the 5,000. This word in Greek is splachniomai, which means to be moved to compassion, but literally it means to be moved in the bowels or guts twisted. It's the, the verb form of the root word for guts or internal organs, which we often translate as heart. By seeing people in suffering and listening to their stories, Jesus has a gut-wrenching movement of love in his body, which brings him to act on their behalf. How well do we listen to oppressed people, people who are vulnerable, socially isolated? Are our guts moved to love, or do we look away? Do we separate information from the rest of our body so it becomes a matter of logic? I'd like to come back to that in a minute, but let's talk about Jairus for a moment. Jairus is a synagogue leader, meaning he had great influence in his community. He was a male in a patriarchal society with social and religious authority. In fact, the only person who asked Jesus for healing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who's mentioned by name, is Jairus. Does this privilege make Jairus bad? No, of course not. He comes to Jesus in great pain and with great faith. Verse 23 says, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will live. She will be healed and live. There's so much certainty in that. He says she will be healed and live. Then he does something unusual for his culture, which highly valued honor. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, relinquishing status on behalf of his daughter. I invite you now to see from Jairus' perspective. And watch the scene unfold in your heart and sense it in your body. You throw yourself down at his feet in petition. And then Jesus starts walking with you. And the crowd follows. There's an expectation of miracle in the air. Are you feeling lighter? Is hope bubbling in your chest? But wait. Jesus stops. He turns around. He's not looking at you anymore. He asks the crowd, who touched me? Maybe you're just confused at first and you furrow your eyebrows until you see a woman rise up, and now you're probably filled with disgust. She's unclean. She's probably smelly. She's probably homeless. You're a synagogue leader in the community, so you know that she's not allowed at religious rituals. And she had the audacity to touch Jesus to infect him, all while he's already on his way to heal your daughter. She starts to speak, and Jesus is listening. 
She keeps talking, telling her whole truth, and as time goes on, you can't think about anything but your daughter who needs a miracle right now. Are your shoulders tensing? Is anxiety filling your belly? Maybe your nostrils are flaring in anger. The Hebrew word for anger is associated with the nose, like a linguistic nostril flare, meaning literally, in some places, burning nose. Suddenly, someone says your name quietly behind you, and you turn around and you see someone whose eyes might be filled with tears. They say, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But then Jesus says to you, don't be afraid, just believe. What happened in your body just then? The word believe is very loaded in a church setting. What are your associations with it? Invite God into that and talk to him about it. Talk to God about it. I think the word has more to do with being than it than it has to do with knowledge. What does Jesus do with this belief? He takes the girl's hand and pulls her back into life. According to the purity codes and numbers, touching a body of a person who has died would have made them unclean. Again, Jesus transforms uncleanliness into wholeness. The old ways are being reversed and opened to healing. Jesus reveals to us in raising Jairus' daughter that his power is outside of time and strong enough to raise someone so sick that they've died. Perhaps God's power outside of our timing is what will make everyone more whole. Can we believe that God's power is love and God's power is beyond all human boundaries, even death? Death is no stranger to WCF. Just this summer, we lost two incredible spiritual leaders and friends, Sue and Jean. But in Jesus, death is thin. Thin like the veil that tore on the day that Jesus died and experienced the full spectrum of the human condition. When one of us falls through the veil, God will catch us and can bring us back or bring us home. For me, the word believe is akin to what author and priest Cynthia Bourgeau describes in her book, Mystical Hope. She says, mystical hope isn't affected by circumstances, but lives a life of its own within us. Mystical hope isn't dissolved by circumstances, though it does not ignore pain. Mystical hope trusts in God's mercy. And she describes mercy in this way. I love this. Mercy, or the Hebrew word hesed, actually means a fierce, bonding love as between committed lovers. It is not about pity, but about passion. When we think of mercy, we should be thinking first and foremost of a bond, an infallible link of love that holds the created and uncreated realms together. It is literally the force that holds everything in existence, the gravitational field in which we live and move and have our being. We, in the words of Psalm 103, swim in mercy as an endless sea. 
Mercy is God's innermost being turned outward to sustain the visible and created world in unbreakable love. No matter what happens, no matter what suffering, God will catch us in loving mercy. Don't be afraid, just believe. That's what Jesus told Jairus when he was forced to make space for the bleeding woman at the seeming expense of his daughter. Let us believe that God will catch us so that we can make room for those suffering in our world, for those who are most vulnerable, not just in our family, not just in our society, in our world, not me first, not America first. We are afraid of losing our place in line, our place in power. Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Jesus asked Jairus to wait for the whole truth and healing of the bleeding woman. What is Jesus asking you to do today? What space do you need to give so that underrepresented people are given representation? One way to describe privilege is that some people have more of a social voice than others. Privilege is a, so, a social stature and access to an arena to speak to the way that things are run. Privilege doesn't mean that you haven't worked hard, but it does mean that you were given an opportunity to work hard that someone else might not have had. Privilege is something that we all have in some ways and we lack in other ways. I ask you to think hard about the privileges that you lack, but more importantly about the privileges that you have. Especially those of us who have unearned privilege because of the color of our skin. We have a special opportunity right now to set aside our white privilege and make space for people of color. Let's not let this opportunity get away. I challenge each one of us to really search ourselves and think about how we do not listen to oppressed people, whether they're disabled, whether they're senior citizens, whether they're people of color. Research on race and embodiment by Dr. Wendy Allen says that white people check out when listening to people of color. They detach themselves from their bodies, from compassion. Racism's response to people of color is to not believe what they say, to dismiss their concerns, to blame them for their concerns, maybe to listen to their stories, but when they offer a solution, to think it's too far-fetched, too much change too quickly, not realistic. Did Derek Chauvin believe George Floyd when he said, I can't breathe? If we are truly listening, people's stories will move us and maybe wrench our guts into compassion and action. Talk to God about that. How is Jesus inviting you to lay down your privilege and make way for those who are bleeding, those who are choking? Jairus was not only asked to set aside his privilege for himself, but also for his daughter something that most of us can't, can't really imagine well. Jairus was asked, and I believe that we are being asked, 
to remain in the discomfort of seeing another person's pain addressed, even if we still have pain. To keep our fear of, sa- of, fear of scarcity out of the driver's seat. Don't be afraid, just believe. John 3, 1 John 3, 16 to 17 in the NIV says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That word for pity is the same Greek word used for compassion that we talked about earlier. In the ESV, the translation says, closes up his heart against him. And better yet, the KJV says, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. We ought to lay down our privilege for our brothers and sisters. Our bodies have scripts inside them already, like lines from a play that narrate to us how we should respond to a stimulus. Some of these scripts serve us well. For example, if we encounter a bear, you should run away or risk being eaten. However, we must intervene in these scripts sometimes to adjust them to what is more whole. If you encounter a black bear, You're actually supposed to make yourself as big as you possibly can. You need to communicate to that bear that you're an opponent to be respected, not prey to be pursued. These scripts might also be from things that have happened to us or past traumas or cultural lenses that tell us how to see the world around us. In our culture, we have inherited racialized scripts that have oppressed people of color for years and years and years. You may have heard about our book club that we have on Monday nights, led by the wonderful Stacy Frank, about the book called Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Our chapter for this week, author Jennifer Harvey, describes these scripts and how they create tension in our bodies. She talked about how scripts based in stereotypes lead us to act in fear. How do these scripts make it easy for us to explain away the pain of others? We can invite Jesus into these scripts. When we're feeling emotions in our bodies, we can say, Jesus, move in me so that I can understand why I'm so upset about this situation. Or one that I pray every day, God, remove these stereotypes. I repent of these stereotypes. Give me your love for all of my sisters and brothers. Jesus, move my guts to compassion, not to hate. What are the things in us that are the old ways that need to be reversed and open to healing? Let's pray. Great physician, heal our hearts. Heal our bodies. Rewrite our scripts with compassion. Give us your spirit's inspiration on how to love our sisters and brothers and remind us every day of your strong and gentle, loving mercy that won't let us fall through. Amen. 